Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Bobby Duffy, Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London. Formerly, he was Managing Director of the Ipsos Mori Social Research Institute and Global Director of the Ipsos Social Research Institute. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Bobby. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. So you worked at an opinion research firm. And what, what did you learn? Well, what, what kind of work did you do there? And what did you learn about opinions while working there? I have uh, worked at in opinion research for about 25 years. Uh, and I started off focusing on the UK. Um, and then particularly when I, when I started looking at people's misperceptions of social realities, I, um, I did a whole series of studies looking at what people thought were ha was happening to crime rates, immigration rates, those types of things in the UK. And what that showed was that people were incredibly wrong about a whole series of social realities in the UK. And it made me think whether the UK was uniquely bad at this or whether this was a global phenomenon. Um, so then I started looking at it internationally about 15 years ago. Then I've done a whole series of studies across all different policy areas, across all different countries, up to 40 countries now. Um, and what it shows is there are some very consistent biases and, and misperceptions in, in how we see some of the key social realities about the world. That doesn't seem that surprising to, to I think most people. They probably understand that most people don't spend a lot of time reading crime reports or immigration reports or things like mm -hmm. this. So that they're inaccurate is, is doesn't seem that shocking. Yeah, I guess it depends what level of accuracy you're you're looking at. I mean, I don't. These are not tests of knowledge or expecting people to have a perfect view of the world. That's not the point of the studies. It's much more that people are biased in consistent direction. So if, if this was about a lack of knowledge um, as opposed to a, a positively held misperception, that would be a lot less interesting. These are, these are not trivia quizzes. But what we find is it's not random lack of knowledge uh, that shows up. So if people really didn't know something, you would expect people to be wrong in all sorts of different directions. But what you find is that people are biased to be wrong in a particular direction. So taking crime as an example, people think it's higher than it is and it's more likely to be going up than it actually is. So uh, this is this gives us an insight into how people think, how people see the world that's that's a, a long way from a test of knowledge. Um, in the literature, there's, there's a big distinction between ignorance, not knowing something, and misperceptions, which is thinking you know something but being wrong about it. And, th and that's really, it's that latter group of things that I'm interested in and what that then tells us about how we see the world and why we're so often so wrong. It doesn't show up in, you have a lot of, charts in the book with people's responses broken out by all sorts of categories on all sorts of questions. But one one answer that doesn't show up much is the I don't know answer. Yeah. And, and I'm curious about this because there are lots of things that we don't know about. Um, there are lots of things I don't know about that I simply don't have because of that, like I don't have beliefs about them. Mm -hmm. um, 
why is it then that we don't see or I guess how much do we see people simply say if you ask them like what are crime rates like um, or how many people from different countries live in your country that they don't say simply I guess I don't know. Oh, people do. People do. So these 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 are uh, mean scores based on the people that do give a response, that do give an answer. So typically, we'll find between about a fifth to uh, a third of people won't give an answer. Will we'll actually volunteer that they don't know, depending on the nature of the question. It can go anywhere from ten uh, percent of people saying they don't know up to a third of people. Most of, most of the time, it's around about a fifth. Of people who they they positively don't know. So people are allowed to give those responses, but the majority do give a response. Um, uh, they are encouraged to give a response because we we are again there's that point of it not being a test of knowledge, it's a test of how they see the world generally. I think one of one of the most interesting charts in there is we also asked people on one of the studies about how certain they were that they got the correct answer. So this, this interaction between certainty and correctness, whether, whether if you think you're right, are you more likely to be right? And what that showed was almost an opposite correlation between those two things, that the people and countries that were most confident that they'd got the answers absolutely correct were the most likely to be the most wrong. Um, and this is related to that, that kind of Dunning-Kruger effect of uh, an overconfidence in your view uh, being related to just not knowing when you don't know something. So that, that's a, that is a, a very important subset of, of these types of questions where you kind of uh, understanding that confidence in how you see the world is very unrelated to actual levels of knowledge. It's much more about your own identity, your own values, uh, just how you see things rather than depth of knowledge. I'm going to take a guess and maybe think, believe that uh, Americans rated high on confidence and low on knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were quite high on this. <laughs> America doesn't do very well overall in the overall index. In fact, it's uh, second worst behind Italy uh, in terms of being correct on these answers across the kind of 14 countries that have been in the study from the beginning where we did a, a mega index across all of them. And the US uh, was second worst. Um, uh, Italy was worst. Uh, and then countries like Sweden and Germany were, were most accurate. It, I think I remember look, seeing that Italy was like 100% wrong on the questions you asked. That's No, that's just an index. Oh, that's it's an the, index. Okay. <laughs> they, they were the top. They're the kind of thing we're all aiming for or to get away from. But uh, uh, that is no, – it's all indexed on 100 and everyone relative to the, the most wrong country, which was Italy. So this wrongness, is it the result of um, – External factors largely, so we're simply – we're consuming poor information, we're consuming incorrect information and then basing false beliefs on it or is it more of an internal factor thing where we're engaging in say motivated reasoning um, or we're – I guess, yeah, like discounting information that conflicts mm. with pre-existing views like – or I mean I assume it's a combination of both but is it weighted more towards one than the other? That's a great question. I mean effectively that – is the crux of the book is 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 pointing out 
that it's exactly those two buckets of effects that we need to bear in mind. Sometimes there's a great deal of focus on our post-truth world and fake news and alternative facts. Um, like this is a, a sole cause of people's misperceptions and biased views of the world. Uh, and then sometimes in other books and analysis, there's an absolute focus on our biases and heuristics, our shortcuts that we take and how they determine uh, how we are wrong about the world. When the reality is it's a systemic issue where one interacts with the other, that the media know which biases we have and how to play on them. We respond in a particular way. That gives the political or hit uh, paid view awards uh, rewards that you get from that. And it creates this cycle where our biases become built into the system of uh, our, our information environment, really. Um, so it's kind of a, it's saying that it's uh, caused more by one than the other is is impossible and kind of misses the point of that one and the other interact and reinforce each other in this cycle of delusion that we create that's that's not uh, an accident it's kind of the media is created around the media and political statements are created around our biases and our biases react to those and give the feedback loops that the media and politicians are after. And it's kind of, um, that, that sounds quite scary uh, to have it as a systemic problem where there's not just one thing you can fix. There isn't, you can't just uh, teach kids critical literacy, uh, news literacy, and then suddenly we'll solve this problem because you can't teach the human biases out of our kids. Uh, and uh, equally, you can't just tell the platforms, the social media platforms, to sharpen up their act or get stricter in the regulations with them, and that will solve the problem. It's how to how you deal with that as a whole group and system is, is the crux of what we need to do. If a feedback loop is playing this role, do we see differences, I guess, either over time, so changing levels of wrongness, call it, mm. or differences between countries based on how i guess how facilitated that feedback loop is so mm -hmm. the the media you know the we a very rapid version of that feedback loop would come in you know sophisticated analytics where we can see if we put up a headline that plays to this bias we get you know this many clicks over the next hour and then we can adjust it so we can have very rapid formation of that loop versus you know you go back to the 1950s when you had a handful of television stations and they didn't really have a good way to measure if people were actually tuning in or how they were responding because they could suppose wait for letters to come in to their reporters but that's not a terribly fast thing and so the feedback loop can't operate as quickly um, or between countries that are more wired up or less wired up do we see differences that would play into that narrative that's a, again a really great question because it is um that that phenomenon of change over time or difference between place and why uh, is one country better than another is something that I looked at both the trends and the differences between countries quite a lot. So on, on the trends, first of all, there's we're lucky that we've got in the US uh, that you have a great tradition of um, study in academia that goes back to the 1940s and 1950s that looked at 
political ignorance or rational ignorance, where there was a uh, a string a stream of thought that was actually uh, to do with the, that a, the electorate doesn't have huge amounts of knowledge of political uh, realities, political and social realities. As a as a part of the argument around the size of the state and how big you should have as a, a state operation, a government operation, because people don't pay much attention to this and they're not making informed choices. Um, so, it uh, from then from 1940s 1950s America, there are a few questions that are similar to my the questions I've been asking. Uh, things like unemployment rates, which people massively overestimate. Um, and what you find from that is people were just as wrong in the 1940s and 50s on things like unemployment rates as they are now. Um, and then more recent trends, like I say, I've been doing this for 15 years. And I haven't. what we haven't seen is particularly any improvement or deterioration in how wrong people are on things like whether the murder rate is going up and down or the level of immigration in their country has not been a massive change. Similarly, when you look across countries, I tried to get measures of media quality or plurality or uh, control uh, levels, measures of the political system, extent to which it was controlled or free. Um, and uh, again, not much relationship between those two things. You can see individual relationships between people who consume particular types of media, like Fox News, in the US or the Daily Mail in the UK, they do tend to have uh, attitudes that relate to those, but that's that you can't tell that that's cause and effect because people pick the media that uh, already reflects their views. So, I mean, overall, my view is that these haven't changed hugely despite our changed in information environment. And the, the question that raises is why? And it may be that it's just too soon to feed through, but the, the second thing that I look at and I think is probably more important is whether misperceptions themselves are the most important indicator here. I'm not so sure whether being more wrong about something, we would expect that over time, as opposed to, say, people becoming more certain of their own worldview being correct and other people's worldview being wrong, as people increasingly see more of the things that they already agree with. So this is, I think, the end point of this is much more to do with polarization in politics and one side drifting apart from the other than it is to do with these kind of answers on uh, how people see reality. So that, that's, the, that's the end point I'm looking at in this, much more than are people getting uh, more wrong or uh, more correct. It's much more how do they see the other side of the argument? And there's much more worrying side on the state of polarization than there is on misperceptions. It seems that many of these misperceptions, uh, just to fill in our listeners, a lot the book sort of centers around asking people what they think something is, and then and then seeing what the difference is between the reality: immigration rates, crime rates, how much sex you think other people are having, things like this. But it seems like a lot of the ones, especially the more policy oriented ones, are pessimistic that the bias is pessimistic like I, you don't see people systematically overestimating the unemployment rate positively and thinking it is much lower than it would be or the immigration rate or the crime rate saying and maybe some of that has to do with the with just nostalgia 
and that we think back on being 10 years old and saying, I didn't feel as endangered by crime when I was 10 years old. And you probably didn't because you were within 10 minutes of your house and you watched cartoons all day. So you didn't see the news stories. And so now that you're whatever, 35, you say, well, the world's so much worse than when I was 10 years old. Um, and that that's the way these sort of pessimistic biases go as you get older. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's in fact, actually, I'm, I'm working my next book on generational differences. And that sense of nostalgia is, is a key aspect in the sense of which we we have a, a, a foreboding about generational decline. I think there's probably there's two main biases going on in that negativity bias, which you know is is rife throughout the uh, the, the results. Where you know in the US, it's only it, the murder rate has gone down significantly over the last twenty years, but very few people within the US think that's uh, the case. It's uh, same on uh, all sorts of different aspects of people thinking things are getting worse. And there's, the two biases really are that negativity bias, where we are programmed to pay more attention to negative information than positive information. And this goes back to our Katie people days, where uh, negative information was more often a threat-based information. So uh, if you didn't take notice of that warning of uh, lurking saber-toothed tiger, you were edited out of the gene pool. So we are literally descendants of people who, who, who have brains who take more notice of negative information and store it more readily. And then secondly, related to your nostalgia point, uh, social psychologists would talk about rosy retrospection, which is uh, that we literally forget the bad things from the past. It's not, it is partly definitely to do with our childhood and we didn't notice those things in the first place but there's lots of experimental work that shows that even if you did notice something bad in the past we're more likely to forget it to let go of it um and that's again that's not a dumb fault of our brains it's actually good for our psychological health not to dwell on those bad things uh, from the past uh, but it does also mean has a, a negative uh, impact in the means that we think the past was better than it was, and it means that we think the present and future are therefore worse than they really are. So we do have both of these things, and it is a consistent thing, not just in the US, across all countries, more focus on the negative and more likely to think things are getting worse rather than better. Did you do any studies that try to connect a certain belief with with political ideology. Well, for example, and I'll ask listeners this question and give them. I'm going to take a pause so they can think of what the actual answer is, which is: out of every hundred people in your country, about how many are Muslim? And you go through a bunch of countries uh, with what the actual percentage of Muslims are. So, if anyone is thinking about their country, uh, I will just say: so, if you're in the U.S., the actual percentage is about one percent, but the average guess was seventeen percent. Um, and in the UK, let's see if I can find the UK here. Well, uh, Ger Germany pretty much overestimated. The actual reality is five percent. The average guess was twenty-one percent, and in Great Britain, about five percent, and the guess was fifteen percent. Yeah. Um, but that would seem to correlate with. I mean, just I'm just sort of commonsensically, if you think that Muslims are a huge danger to the world then maybe you're more likely to overestimate the level of Muslims. Yes, that's exactly that effect. I think uh, one of the 
key explanations for lots of our misperceptions is that they're more emotional than they may seem. We, we may be asking or think we're asking about a very neutral fact of what proportion does this part of the population make up within the overall population. But that's not how people react. We react much more emotionally to those types of questions than we, uh, than we think. And, and that sense of threat from the Muslim population is very clear cut. When you, when you look at the media coverage of the Muslim population in the US and the UK, it's very similar, is that 80 to 90% of all media coverage is negative of the Muslim population. It's all associated with threat. Um, and, and we are storytelling animals in the end, that where a vivid, unusual story draws our attention and uh, takes more of our notice than the boring, normal stories. And the consequence of that is it grows in our heads. And we think it's a bigger thing than it really is, even on these realities. And the Muslim population one is, is interesting because we also asked, what do people think it would be in a few years' time? Not 10 years or 20 years, but just four or five years' time. And in the US, people thought it would go up again to 23%. Um, uh, when the reality, when the expected reality is it's still going to be around 1%. So, you know, this view that nearly a quarter of the population in the US would be Muslim in a few years' time, and in the U in France, it was 40% people projecting forward. So, so it's not just a sense of uh, current threat, it's a sense of Muslim population is growing at an, an enormously fast rate, and that, that threat is increasing. And that, that is driven by that emotional reaction much more than a rational uh, consideration of the facts. How much, too, does just the the fact that humans are bad at, ba at big numbers play mm. into this? Like we're pretty good at manipulating numbers on a small scale and doing some basic arithmetic. But if you ask us to imagine a big number, we kind of have a hard time distinguishing it from an even bigger number. And so yeah. people are just kind of – if something's going up, then that means it's going to be huge and I'm going to name an excessively huge number. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in the group of things that I look at about how our brains work so in that bucket of that math and statistical – mathematical and statistical literacy is a, is a key element of it. We don't really think in precise uh, – uh, ratio terms. We think much more ordinarily, um, as in an order of things, where something is big or small. Um, and there is this really fascinating effect um, uh, that is looked at by a, a US academic called David Landy, uh, using our data called psychophysics. Um, and psychophysics is uh, the, the study of our psychological reaction to physical phenomena. And basically what that shows in this context is that we tend to overestimate small things uh, and underestimate big things. So if I, if I ask you to uh, estimate the brightness of a light, you will overestimate a dim light and underestimate a bright light in terms of how bright it is or a heavy weight and a, a lightweight is kind of built into the mechanics of our brains. And, and what, what it boils down to for this type of effect is that we basically, when we're uncertain about a figure, we hedge towards the middle. Um, we kind of know it's relatively small, but we don't want to go 
stupidly small in our in our thinking. So we go a bit higher. We hedge, hedge in, in our case, because it's usually up 100% of the population, people hedge towards 50%. So there is also a very mechanical effect going on here where we're bad at numbers, as you say, bad at understanding uh, the scale of things, switching between different sorts of scales. So we kind of hedge our hedge our bets a little on it. So there's there's definitely some of this, which is not emotional, not driven by politics. It's just the way our brains uh, work. Um, the good thing about that is you can kind of you can kind of partial that effect out from the data to look at what people are really wrong about. Um, if you were uh, if you take into account those psychophysical effects and it still leaves people very wrong about certain social realities even more wrong than you'd expect from the psychophysics models but it's, it's a really useful thing to remind ourselves of is that we're all saying uh we have these mechanical challenges it's particularly prevalent when we're talking about risk people have a terrible understanding of risks um because we're drawn to the attention grabbing risk rather than the ones that will actually cause us harm have you found any Partisan bias. I mean, sort of which partisan is partisans are sort of worse at this because you t we go through immigration, you talk about Brexit mm -hmm. and things like this, and I imagine some listeners, you know, or even like looking at the title of your book, "Why We're Wrong About Nearly Everything," might say, "Well, it's because they watch Fox News and, and with their bias," or "Oh, it's because they read the Daily Mail or they watch MSNBC or they or they read the New York Times." If you're in the kind of Trump camp, but did you find any idea that maybe one group might be a little bit more often? wrong than another group it was i mean it's there are differences in the errors that people make and it is uh so for example one of the the um key questions that we asked in the u.s and other countries was what kills m most more people uh out between guns knives and other violence in interpersonal violent death so not suicides but what's the biggest killer uh of people um, between guns, firearms, uh, knives, or other types of physical violence. Um, and overall, in the US, uh, it's guns. Uh, guns kill more people. Uh, they're responsible for 68% of interpersonal violent deaths um, in the US. Uh, and the average guest in the US is, is not too bad. 59% correctly choose guns, uh, well ahead of everything else. But the most interesting aspect was on um, the uh, difference in views between supporters of different political parties. So it goes from 83% of people who strongly identify as uh, Democrats, saying that it's guns, down to 27% of people who strongly uh, identifies Republicans saying it's guns. So here, here we have the, the same social reality seen entirely differently depending on your pre-existing political views. Um, and this is, that's kind of one of the more extreme examples of difference between either media consumption or political views and, and misperception. We see, we do see similar sorts of effects on immigration and deaths from terrorism, where either your media consumption and your and or your political views will bias your views to some degree, not as much as that guns example. And the, the overview of that, though, is that there's only really a handful of issues where partisan bias 
really makes makes a big difference to how wrong people are. Um, and that's really important, I think, in, in this, is it, it shows that different partisan views are important and the confirmation bias uh, that we were talking about earlier, those types of things do have an effect, but they don't explain everything. There's only those handful of things. And that's really important, I think, because there's been a lot of other work in this sort of area that's talked about uh, things like backfire effects, which is where if you tell someone they're wrong about a factual point and give them the correct answer, that can actually make them more likely to hold on to the wrong answer, to try to argue against the correct answer, because they've got such a strong partisan bias that uh, they just find ways to uh, hold on to that view. Uh, and it reminds them of their identity and of those views. And I think um, more recent work on backfire effects has shown that it, it, it barely works on any issue, hardly any issues do you see backfire effects where telling people the right answer makes them more likely to think, uh, believe in the wrong answer. Um, and that's really important because it shows that people are not completely siloed by their uh, partisan views or the media that they consume. It's not nearly as bad as for a while we thought where you couldn't even use information to help inform people because it may have the opposite effect. And that's, that's a massively important thing to bear in mind because it, it means that facts, information isn't useless, isn't or actually detrimental. In most cases, for most issues, uh, it doesn't have that negative effect. It's still it's questionable whether it actually changes people's minds. You, you can't just tell people the the correct information expect them to change their worldview, uh, but at least it doesn't have that negative effect. And that's really important to hold on to because we got to a point where actually you're starting to think information is useless because uh, people are just so wedded to their side of the argument they won't look at anything else or think about anything else. And that's not, doesn't seem to be true. Uh, there's a more hopeful view of how people can reach outside their own bubble and their own echo chambers on these things. How does that process work? So we've, we're saying that this blowback effect is relatively minimal or at least constrained to a handful of issues. But as you just said, people, if you give them the correct answer, it's not necessarily clear that that has a huge impact on them updating their beliefs. How then do people update their beliefs? How do we set about correcting some of these issues? Um, or are there – is it simply a matter of just reinforcement that, you know, so someone who identifies heavily with the Democratic Party and thinks that 83 percent of violent deaths are from guns um, when the actual answer is 68, if you tell them once, they don't update, but if they hear it a bunch of times, they do? Um, or is it more about the source of the information, that if it's coming from someone who also identifies strongly on the left, so they don't, they're not suspicious of the person, then maybe one time is enough? Are there just kind of features of updating that we could use to help to correct these problems? Yeah, no, it's again a great question. Is it's kind of what, what, what you're aiming for, really, I think, is um, skepticism, but not cynicism or utter credulity about everything everyone tells you. So you, you want people, you don't want people flip-flopping around on their entire worldview, depending on the last thing they heard from people. Uh, equally, you don't want people to dismiss everything 
they ever hear if it doesn't fit with their word, uh, their previous view of the world. Um, so you want people to have that skepticism to be able to uh, test new information, different information, and and question it. And I think that takes time. Um, I think I still find the old theories of cognitive dissonance really useful in this. Um, so this was mostly in 1960s America, great academics developing this approach to thinking about cognitive dissonance, where um, when you hear something that doesn't agree with your worldview, it causes you some element of psychological pain. So you, your initial reaction is to kind of ignore it, denigrate it, uh, and look for stuff that does confirm your worldview. Um, eventually, though, the psychological pain of uh, updating your view as opposed to just avoiding the new information becomes uh, comes to a tipping point where it's actually better and easier, uh, less painful for you to update your view than uh, to stick to your guns and say everyone else is, is wrong. Um, so there is, there is a tipping point here. And how you get to that depends very much on the individual, the issue, uh, and the approach, as, as you say. I mean, I'm, I am personally a fan of deliberative uh, approaches, deliberative approaches to democracy, where you do get people together with experts, with each other, and to present the evidence to them, to allow them to discuss it between themselves and try to come to a consensual view, the kind of town hall model that is developed in the US and the deliberative polling models that James Fishkin and others uh, uh, advocate. Um, we have a lot of growth in that in the UK right now with various citizens' assemblies, uh, they're mostly called, where people are given a task to answer a question or come up with an approach to something. But they're given a few days um, and information and allowed to question that information, allowed to talk to each other. Uh, and what you find from those processes is that people uh, don't up absolutely upend their worldview, but they do listen to others. They do take on new information and they do update to some degree on, on particular issues. And that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the element of this is you, you don't have to you get the environment right and the questions right and the approach right. You don't have to expect people to come out of these things with a completely different worldview to completely change uh, how they see themselves and their, their own identity. It's much more about getting people to uh, reasonably discuss these types of things. And people are much, much more amenable, capable and interested in doing those types of things than the impression you get from the all the arguments you see on Twitter or other social media, it's not. That's not how people are in real life. Um, they are much more uh, capable of compromise and listening to the other side in real life. Is my experience, and I think um, uh, holding on to that and looking at ways in which you can actually get to those more reasonable uh, traits that people have is a key aspect of how we're going to renew democracy, renew people's faith in the system in, in the future. This, though, would seem to raise a issue about the overall costs of wrong beliefs because mm -hmm. so people, lots of people have wrong beliefs, inaccurate beliefs about lots of issues, as you've demonstrated, you know, at length in the book. Um, but 
the mechanism that you just described for correcting these false beliefs is quite a costly one in mm. in terms of i mean participating in these things you say you put people in a room for a few days to talk about the stuff that's like a few days that they're not spending doing other things like we could you know we all could be just immersing ourselves in learning the the correct answers to the kind of data that you present in the book but that's there's opportunity cost there's other things we could be doing with that time and mm. Potentially for a lot of people, it wouldn't be a super valuable use of their time compared to the other things they could be doing. So is there like kind of an optimal level of wrong beliefs or how do we weigh that in the sense of just saying like, yes, we could fix them, but it would mean taking a lot of effort away from a lot of other things that are valuable? Yeah, that's quite – it's like uh, this is the – one of the core elements of the rational ignorance or political ignorance um, trends that the U.S. has explored in, in a number of different ways. I mean, the, the other entirely different route is, which is the, the logical conclusion from much of the rational ignorance literature, is that because of that opportunity cost and because of the incentives to inform or, or not inform, an alternative approach is to shrink the size of government and these centralized decisions hugely um, and bring the decision-making much more down to an individual level. Um, Instead of having these centralized decisions, the more that you can put towards uh, individuals, um, the better, because we invest more in researching uh, which washing machine to buy than into uh, which political candidate to back. And, And that is a different legitimate route to... Uh, think about um, uh, as an approach to actually just instead of saying how can we make these decisions better, how can we reduce these decisions um, is is an approach. It, beca- it runs into stickiness and difficulties because people have preferences still and how do they express them. Um, the, the idea that Ilya Soman and, and others uh, develop is, is footfall democracy, which is people follow uh, the move to the areas which they uh, agree with the basic aspects of how that state is run. And that, again, that runs into practical difficulties of how people live and whether they are as free to move um, as, as that, that kind of system uh, would allow. So I think the if we've got a system which requires that centralised decision-making, which we, we will continue to have, in many different ways. The question, I suppose, is uh, do we come to better decisions as a result of those types of efforts um, than we would do? Otherwise, will they have more legitimacy with people and are they likely to stick for longer? Uh, incredibly difficult to measure the uh, value of that, um, the monetary or social value of those types of things. I think the, the potential there is only going to increase, though, in terms of uh, thinking about deliberative democracy. What, what's been notable is how little we've managed to use technology for those deliberative democracy approaches to date, because this seems very old-fashioned, get everyone in a room for this length of time. Um, and there are online methods that are being developed at a much lower cost in terms of investment and, and effort, much more in tune, I guess, with how people live today. Things like tools like V Taiwan, which Taiwan has developed um, into this more deliberative tool on lots of different decisions that people don't have to commit the same sort of resources and time to and can fit in around 
uh, lifestyle. So I think what we'll see is a, is a blending of these different things um, over the next few years. I guess the uh, value of it depends on how your, uh, how, how you view the current system and the future threats to the current system. If we see it as being a proper existential threat to liberal democracy approaches that people are uh, losing so much faith in the system that they are going to reject the responses from the system, then those kind of threats actually uh, warrant quite a bit of investment and a, quite a bit of new thinking. If we think we're just going to muddle along and the implications are not going to be nearly as dire, then yes, you could say, actually, is it worthwhile and shouldn't there be other things that we, are working, that we should work on instead? On that point about it was hard for me to kind of figure out in reading your book whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic overall. Right. Um, so, but it's for me, I think that I've you know, in watching the internet. And there's obviously we've discussed different sources of this of false beliefs than just the internet, but but that's definitely one in social media. But we've also seen throughout the history of the internet, let's just say since the late '90s, so the, not the really early history that. It became known that the internet is a source of misinformation and spam and fraud, so like Nigerian princes and, and things like this. And then you had the development of antibodies, so to speak, like Snopes, uh, to come in and help correct that misinformation. And that's still a developing process that when we find something, some sort of quote unquote fake news site, that there can be a method that is in demand that, that people actually would like to know whether or not something is coming from a reputable source. Um, and then we have things like you, you write about Hans Rosling in the book, uh, people out there who, who do go viral telling things like how things actually are. Um, and, and so it seems like we're always kind of developing new technologies and, and institutions to, to combat some of this misinformation. And, and maybe since we're kind of in the infancy of the internet, you know, th this could go more in a positive direction than a negative one. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the vision. It was definitely an optimistic vision to start with, where the natural assumption would be that uh, this would be a freer resource of information that people would have access to. Um, and that would improve both our worldview, accuracy of our worldview and um, decision-making. And that, that optimism kind of left out the human biases that would be interacting with it, all the types of negativity, bias, rosy retrospection, confirmation bias, all of those types of things, not factored in sufficiently to it. But that doesn't mean to say at all, like you say, that doesn't mean to say that we're stuck with this model of the internet where you have a fairly, uh, a, a way in which misinformation and disinformation can spread incredibly quickly and then the fact-checking process uh, comes in later and, and, and by then has minimal effect. I mean, the fact-checking world is very much looking at second and third generation fact-checking, which is, is much more about how do you build it into the system um, because this is a system we have built in a relatively short period of time. And you can, you can imagine how um, there may be possibilities in the future that instead of a, a relevance ranking coming up in your Google search, you have a veracity ranking about how checked this information is. And that there is nothing to stop us um, to start to build those those types of things in in, in many ways. Um, uh, there are 
you know, things that would have to change and um, revenue models that would have to change. So there's a big there's a big stickiness in this, but it is something that we have created. I do think the danger with all kind of technical control regulation is we're always regulating or controlling the last thing rather than the future thing, and that there will be new developments that make it more and more difficult to keep a accurate view of the world. And we, we need to start thinking more about the principles that we want to uphold on in our information environment rather than the a response to a particular type of technology. And that's kind of that more principle-based thinking about what, what is it we're trying to achieve uh, with this is more difficult, but that's going to send standards in better stead in the future. I think, I mean, in, on the optimism-pessimism question, I am, I am optimistic uh, in the end, partly because uh, we need to be on this because uh, our biases are so pulled towards being negative that that playing into that sense of there's nothing we can do about the information environment, nothing we can do about people's misperceptions, uh, nothing we can do about that sense that everything is going downhill, kind of reinforces uh, those who want to tell us that the system is broken um, and we need to rip it all up and start again. So we need to hold on to that because we're hold up to that sense of optimism because we're naturally pulled in the other direction. And if we get pulled into too pessimistic a direction, that leaves space uh, for things to be ripped up that are actually doing a lot of good for people. Someone listening to this episode might, they are thinking, oh my God, you know, what all am I wrong about? Or they've just read your book and let's say they got they got basically every single one of the questions in it wrong and they're, you know, like uh, and they, they want to get better and you've just told us, well, but you know, your your brain is wired to misconstrue information or overestimate in certain directions. Um you're meshed in a media environment and a technological environment where there's lots of information coming from everywhere and not just is a lot of it wrong, but many of the sources you go to get the information or the platforms that you find information through are incentivized to show you not the the most accurate. So you've painted, you've just told us there's a sense of optimism, but there's also the the overall picture is pretty grim. Um, and a so as an individual, what can I do just in my own life in the way that I approach things to try to mitigate against all of these forces? How can I go about consuming information, go about trying to understand my world in a way that's going to at least bias me back in the less wrong direction? Yeah, so again, great question. It's like uh, the, there's three or four tips and there's kind of technical tips about uh, how you get your information and mixing up your feed and uh, looking across the divide for where, where you find information. So effectively popping your own filter bubble as much as you can. And that's not just online. Um, that is in day-to-day -day life as well. There is that element of seeing the other side and not trying to avoid it. Bearing, bearing in mind that confirmation bias is one of our strongest biases, just being aware of that is helpful. I mean, I think the three or four other things, just to bear in mind, and these, it's much more about modes of thinking than it is about technical tips or what app to download or whatever else. I mean, I think it does start with remembering that things are not as bad as we think, quite literally. 
that the brain is telling us that things are, are worse than they are because that's what it focuses on. on. But, but second within that, accepting the emotion um, that there is, you're going to have these emotional reactions to things and you can't really stop that. When, when Daniel Kahneman was asked, you know, uh, is he getting better? at this over time. He said, no, absolutely not. I've been studying for 45 years and I'm no better than I, than I was. But what, what he meant was that he couldn't stop his system one, his fast thinking from, uh, from uh, uh, ruling his first initial reaction. He can, you can, with training in some circumstances and with, with focus, get your system two slower thinking to kick in. So accepting the emotion but then challenging your thought. Um, there is that third point about cultivating skepticism but not cynicism it is just as bad to be uh, utterly dismissive of other points of view as it is to uh, accept everything you've heard so that that kind of more cynical outlook but not uh, that more skeptical outlook but not utterly cynical outlook um and then two final ones are uh, this presumption that everyone is like us more like us than we think that we are normal um often leads us astray. We generalize from our own experience to other people. We think we're represent. we and our friends are representative of the world. So one of the, the key messages to, is just to remember that we're not as normal as we think. Um, and on the other hand, on the other side of that, um, there is uh, an element of not being drawn to the extreme. So we are not the norm. But be careful when you see extreme stories, vivid emotional stories, and how that changes your view of reality, because they do play a bigger part in our responses and how we see the world uh, than they warrant often. We are drawn to the vivid and unusual, and then forget that they're vivid because they are unusual. Um, they are not the norm, uh, and we shouldn't generalize from them. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash freethoughtspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.